The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt Peterson, the Ideas Editor for Barron's Magazine. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. My guest today is Ed Price. Ed is a senior fellow at NYU's Center for Global Affairs and uh, principal at Ergo Intelligence. He's also a regular contributor to the Barron's commentary pages. Welcome, Ed. Hi, Matt. How are you? All right, thanks. So, Ed, you're one of the people that I turn to when I'm trying to sort of make sense of a complicated world uh, with all the uncertainty out there. So I want to try to bring our listeners and viewers into some of that. And let's start with just a big, broad, level-setting question, which will be a fun one. How close are we to World War III right now? World War III straight off the bat, Matt. Um, well, you're never one to hold your punches. Thanks for having me here today. That's very, very difficult to tell. Um, it certainly feels like we're somewhat closer to World War III, not least because there's a ground war in Europe. Um, and that feels like lazy writing from, you know, seasons one and two of, of World War, the show, right? Like, it feels very, very retrogressive. Uh, and of course, there are, there are serious tensions in South China Sea and over Taiwan. But the reason I say it's very difficult to say is that uh, if you think about it, we have two examples of world wars and two examples of the conditions that precede world wars. Uh, one of those is, of course, the Second World War. And I think we tend to remember that as a period of protectionism, um, antagonistic trade links that are eventually broken or degraded, currency collapses, inflation, deflation, and so on. Um, and that is the world that we remembered when we built the Bretton Woods system in 1945. So bad trade equals war. Uh, I think we forget that there's also the First World War, and that was a period of rapid globalization, arguably as good or better than the globalization that we have today under the British Empire. And that, of course, preceded the First World War, World War I. So net-net, I would argue that we have two examples of how these things start, two preconditions. And it all comes down to whether the two sides, the US and China, are willing to, to really think about those two examples in new, innovative ways. So. Do you think that we are in something different, a third period that's not like one of those other two? I mean, what what is the relevance of those historical examples? I mean, it does feel like more like the World War II run-up that you were just describing with the breakdown of trade and you know global tensions and things like that. Well, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't because there yeah. are still aspects of the global economy. I would argue that are hyper-globalized. Um, you know, the dollar standard and global capital mobility, uh, digital for now at least. Um, information and, and goods still, despite there being an introduction of tariffs as of 2016. Um, so what's the relevance? It, again, it's hard to tell because the relevance will be in the minds of policymakers today. On the one hand, you have history and history tends to repeat itself, right? We had the Great War, which was the war to end all wars. Uh, and 20 years later, we had almost an exact rerun uh, with Germany fighting a war on two fronts. So We've, we've, you know, we know that world wars can happen again, despite knowing about world wars. 
but you'd think that third time lucky, we would want to avoid a third one. Um, and I, and I, you know, when I think about this, the the obvious difference today is that we have nuclear arms. We have these these weapons of mass destruction facing each other, have had for many decades now, and that calculus must be in the back of people's minds uh, when they're engaging in brinksmanship. Right. So, so one of the ways that this matters to investors is through the quality of global growth and how much the U.S. economy and all these economies around the world are, are growing. And one thing that I think people are going to hear a lot about over the next couple of days is how all of those things are in great trouble. It's the annual meetings of the, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, which is where finance ministers get together and basically get really upset about all of this stuff. And, you know, we, we ran an essay this week at Barron's from the chief economist of the World Bank, who, you know, very intelligently and accurately points out that, you know, that that growth and investment across borders, broadly speaking, has slowed down. How much does that worry you? And, and what do you think broadly about this, the state of globalization and growth right now? Well, globalization and growth derived from globalization are different things. And it's obvious that the growth function of globalization has slowed down because of either policy um, or second order effects, right? People are looking at the world and saying, um, I mean, look at the last executive order on, on semiconductors, right? People are looking at the world and saying, maybe trade links, deep trade links are not the best strategic thing to do. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not still globalized in the sense that the import and export of disequilibria and shocks um, is still something that's hyper-globalized, if you like. And I think the COVID pandemic is a very good example of that. Just because you get an outcome that you don't like doesn't mean that you're not still in a system that itself is functioning. And um, maybe COVID is an example of how labor markets, despite the fact that people don't tend to move across borders, labor markets are integrated at least through the biological vector, right? So globalization, I mean, I remember when I was a, a young man, it was the talk of the town, everything was sorted out, everything was fine. You know, take your pick, what do you want to do, foreign service or investment banking? That, that world is gone. But I don't think that the exposures between economies that you could also describe as globalized, I think they're probably here to stay, even if they're negative. Yeah, you, you mentioned these export controls on China. And I think that's a really let's talk about that for a second, because I'd love to know sort of what you what you make of that, of like how big of a break that is with, you know, the trajectory of this sort of integrated global economy. I mean, it's like clearly at one level, this is, you know, a political attempt that I'm talking about um, the, the issuance in October of rules that prohibit U.S. Um, companies from working with the semiconductor sector in China, basically export controls, you know, which follow on, you know, a couple of, of years of, of attempts by the Biden administration to add to what the Trump administration did through tariffs. But, but just talk about what you see as the significance of that in this context. I think the significance could be as stark as a war footing because if one power decides that another power really shouldn't have access to the sorts of technologies that the executive order targeted, um, semiconductors, advanced AI, quantum, I mean, what do you use those things for other than your highest end state function? Um, and that has to include military, right? So that's always in the back of my mind. Um, the, the real parallel though, as a former British trade official in my mind was Brexit. And I thought, oh my goodness, here is a, a polity, a state issuing rules about how you should trade less with another uh, major trading economy 
without being super, super clear, there's, there's ambiguity if you go through this. I mean, it's pretty obvious what the target is, but exactly how to comply is not quite clear. And that, that's the sort of thing that I think could lead to fear, uncertainty, and overcompliance on the US side. Um, now, to, to weigh that out, the US business community is still trying to expose itself to Chinese growth, right? You, you can tell that they are way behind where the State Department is on, on their China call, their China view. Um, but for me, it was it was pretty pretty significant, honestly. That's interesting to hear you compare that to Brexit, both because you worked for the British government during Brexit, but which we can come back to in a second. But but also because you know it suggests that this is really the beginning of far-reaching change. I mean, you know, Brexit really did change the UK's economic trajectory. I mean, maybe less so everyone you know outside of it. But um, but if you're saying like actually the US, you know, moderately severing some economic linkages with China is, is headed in that direction or is of that scale. Like that, that's, a, that's a bigger deal than at least like the government would make of it, right? I think so. Um, yeah. If I was being cheeky, I would continue this, um, this analog and I would say, okay, the, the, the previously described soft Brexit that the, the British were, were aiming for is essentially the today's equivalent of de-risking with China. The reality was just about as hard a Brexit as you can imagine, and that is the decoupling equivalent. So, you know, for my money, de-risking is, is something of a fantasy. I don't think it can work. I think there are second and third order effects very rapidly, uh, and a China reaction function that, you know, the Chinese are, are not stupid. They're very smart, and they can read the room. Um, and so the, the analogy for me is like, if you think about fiscal and monetary policy, whether or not you get the policy impact that you want, you can set a number. It's quite discreet. If you're talking about regulation and trade policy, it's quite, it's, it's quite difficult, even more difficult to choose a number of like, you know, what is capital allowed to do and how much lending will there be? And will there be more or less trade as a result of a policy? That's a lot harder and it can quite rapidly fall into a, into a down spiral. Well, so so play that out. I mean, are you suggesting then that the result of this, you know, economic policy making is going to be war between the US and China? No, I don't think that um, the US moving to restrain on the face of things today what are still strategic interests rather than broad-based Chinese growth. Remember, anything that's an, an act of uh, blockade is also an act of war. So this is way before trying to impose or export hunger or discomfiture or you know a recession we're not trying to do that this is not what we did with the soviet union um but i do think that this this posture could lead to further tensions it, you know there's always ambiguity it's very difficult if you look at the real pointy end of the u.s china relationship it's not clear whether uh garrisoning and uh, Taiwan and you know increasing their ability to resist the Chinese attack. It's not clear whether that in and of itself acts as a deterrent and makes uh, a deterrent and makes war less likely, um, or shows the Chinese and shows Xi Jinping that the, the strategic window is closing, so they have to hurry up. Same with these export controls. Yeah, um, I, I want to bring in a, a, a list of question here because I think it nicely sort of ties this back to what our our audience really cares about, which is uh, Robert wants to know what would losing democracy mean to the stock market? What would losing democracy mean to the stock market? Yeah. 
Well, the, the stock market is a democracy, and the stock market is a technology for dealing with imperfect and asymmetric information, just the same way as an election is. If you buy a, or sell a stock in a way, it's the same as voting for or voting against a candidate. You give it a bit of time, you see if it performs the way you want it to, um, and if it doesn't, you get rid of it. So for my money, the stock market and democracy per se are linked at the hip. And if you look at countries that don't have democracy, they don't have a, an equities culture either. They don't have um, free thinking individuals who can place bets on an uncertain future. So I would say you have to have the one and the other. Uh, if you were arguing against that view, you might say that democracy gets in the way of making money. And, um, you know, corporate America would be would be thrilled with a zero regulation uh, environment. I don't agree with that. I think transparency of information is core to the U.S. economic model. Let's switch gears here for a second. I might come back to that. But I wanted to ask you about um, about Russia and Ukraine. You were you were in Ukraine earlier this year uh, and you talked to the Ukrainian finance minister. You wrote about this for us. Um, one of the things that you talked about was corruption in Ukraine. Um, and that's that's a subject that's like very much live in U.S. politics right now because we're debating the House is sort of paralyzed over this question of, well, who should lead it, but but also secondarily, whether or not it's you know appropriate to give any money to Ukraine. And part of the objection is that um, Ukraine is a you know cesspool of corruption. Uh, so, you know, talk about what, what you heard while you were over there. Talk about this question of, of corruption. Um, go ahead. Sure. Well, Russia is a cesspool of corruption. Ukraine is not a cesspool of corruption. Uh, Ukraine has a manageable corruption problem that it is managing. And President Zelensky and his administration are t undertaking all sorts of measures to try and get past this Soviet legacy, essentially. I mean, they're digitizing, they're trying to get more transparent even in wartime. And by the way, they're talking about it. I mean, if I'm sitting across a coffee table with a finance minister who's a very senior member of the government, and he's looking me in the eye and saying, here is our exact corruption problem, here's exactly what we're doing to deal with it. Um, that's a good thing, right? I mean, that's what you want. I don't think you'd get the equivalent in the Kremlin or in Russia. Um, nonetheless, the, the, the essence of the problem is that the Ukrainian military and economy and civil society uh, are still essentially a product of the Soviet Union. And um, the Soviet Union, as was, if you were a citizen of the USSR, you didn't trust your government. You knew that if you wanted uh, goodies at Christmas, you had to use the black market. And, you know, skimming off the top was... You know, current normal practice for, for many, many years. Um, so that's that's obvious. But look, I mean, they're, they're doing everything they can to try and deal with it while, by the way, fighting a war against a far worse problem, which is an imperial, aggressive, genocidal invasion. And how do you think they're doing at that? I, I was struck by their sheer bravery and um, also struck by how they are doing that with not much. And I know that we've sent equipment and financing and continue to send equipment and financing. Um, but it's, I don't think it got to the level that it should have uh, as quick as it should have. And asking the Ukrainian forces to uh, conduct combined arms operation without combined arms, without air power, I think was, was illogical. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I, you know, you know me, I'm on record saying we should continue and increase Western aid to Ukraine no matter what. But they ain't going to quit if we don't, right? They're going to yeah. continue. And if you look at the uh, Ukrainian domestic munitions industry, it's it's getting to a place where it can provide for its own 
um, at least to keep the war going. So I think they're doing pretty damn well. Um, and I mean, look, look, imagine a counterfactual. Imagine if Zelensky, heaven forbid, had been assassinated or had surrendered. Uh, we would have Russia in control of the entire country uh, just getting ready for an attack on Poland. Yeah, maybe. Uh, do, I mean, what do you think the, the, the stakes are here for, for particularly for investors, right? Who's, this is who's in our audience, right? Does it matter this sort of will they won't they debate about Congress and the United States support for Ukraine? Does does that matter? Or not? Like the stakes that people probably feel here are this is really a question about whether the U.S. you know deals with its own problems, whether that's borders here or our deficits, right? I mean, th there is a pretty stark contrast here between are we going to spend billions on Ukraine or are we going to you know eventually try to reduce our long term debt? Uh, that that is kind of the way that this is getting framed in Congress right now. What, do you think that that matters? I think it's the one, the wrong way to frame it. I don't think that's the way to frame it at all. Uh, if you're talking about U.S. debt, you're talking about Mount Everest. If you're talking about the money that goes to Ukraine, you're talking about uh, a tiny hill. It's 5% of U.S. defense budget, and within that, a lot of it's old surplus equipment. Um, so I think it's whoever's framed this as a choice between... <laughs> Me, to be clear. Well... <laughs> You then, um, I think, Matt, respectfully, that's that's maybe not the way to frame it because it, it's not a choice between the getting on top of U.S. debt, which, by the way, we should do, and sending a relatively small amount of money from money that's already being allocated to the Defense Department, right, to Ukraine. Um, if I, you know, 20 years ago, if you told me that the that NATO would be able to defend in a kinetic theater against Russian attacks without losing a single soldier for 5% of the U.S. defense budget, I would have told you you're crazy. Yeah. I mean, do you think the outcome here, how closely do you think investors should watch the war in Ukraine? I mean, you know, I wrote quite a bit about this at the beginning of the war when things were changing and, and there were some real immediate consequences, the inflation and energy prices and, and elsewhere. Does, does the sort of day-to-day -day stakes matter very much to people who you know are mainly you know concerned with you know bond yields here in the US or whatever it is well I'll answer that and then I'll go back to the US pol politics side because I have a question for you but like I don't I don't think that investors need to watch the war as it unfurls day by day I mean that's my job I think they should be looking at the Ukrainian economy and one thing that was apparent to me when I was over there is that there's going to be huge reconstruction opportunities and Ukraine um, is going to be a viable economy with its own energy resource, its own agricultural resource, an incredible thriving digital uh, internet-based economy as well. So, I mean, get it, you know, I, I would plug for these guys and tell investors what I was told up front, which is get in now. Um, but back to the, to the U.S., Matt, I mean, uh, I, I really should, after a decade of living here, understand this a bit better. But um, I am, well, I've got you now, so I'll ask you, what is going on with the, the Speaker and the Congress? I mean, how does that resolve? It's not clear that it does. Um, you, you know, the next step is that on Tuesday, there's going to be the Republicans are going to have a candidates forum. Fox News has now said it's going to broadcast it. So we'll get to see a little bit of what's actually going on there. Right. You've got a couple of, of candidates who are, um, you know, trying to take this, you know, incredibly thankless job of Speaker of the House. But um, I have no idea who is going to win. I doubt anybody does. You, know, you have the same tensions that have characterized the Republican conference since since the beginning, which is that, you know, there is a large group of moderate Republicans who make up the majority of, of that members of the House on the Republican side. 
but there are enough hardliners, the Matt Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world that, um, you know, are very upset with how business is done and see this, this as their moment to, you know, make their concerns known. And they are going to do that uh, in this process. Jim Jordan um, is now, you know, the, the trying to coalesce support as the candidate of that faction. It's hard to see how he, you know, carries the day, I think. You know, what you hear from the reporting from Congress is that you know, Republicans are very upset with the way that the, the speakership, you know, imploded. Uh, it really doesn't look good for them nationally. Whether that matters is another question in terms of their electoral chances. It's a long time before the election. So, like, you know, how does this play out? I, I have no idea. You know, we're going to be in this fight um, probably, you know, for some time over whether or not the House, you know, has any, um, you know, solidity to it um what that means in sort of practical terms is kind of hard to say we're going to learn whether or not we may learn whether or not you know the speaker pro tem patrick mchenry has the ability to call legislations very much a, a matter of, of live debate um you know the, one of the questions that is is being investigated right now is like you know, this this position of a, of a temporary speaker has only existed for 20 years since September 11th because, you know, after those attacks right. targeted Congress, there was this you know, realization that, like, you would need someone to be able to act if if uh, the House had been decapitated. It was a horrifying thought, but but now we have a contingency plan for it. And so, you know, the, the premise of that is, like, in theory, a House speaker, this interim speaker could do whatever a speaker normally can do, which... The point of walking through this is to say, like, there's lots of scenarios in which sort of the politics intensifies and Congress gets itself out of a shutdown. And so my gut feeling on all this is like, like the politics is going to be this crazy spectacle for um, another, for the foreseeable future. But it's probably not going to matter that much as far as policy is concerned, because there are ways of resolving the question. Interesting. Um, I mean, you know. That's my semi-informed read of having reported this out for the last couple of weeks, but like really we're just going to kind of have to watch and, and, well, and wait here. It, it does make me feel slightly better to hear you say that you have no idea because I don't. <laughs> I don't. As, as always in political forecasting, you know, the rule is don't listen to the people who, uh, uh, right. who say they know what's going on because I don't think anybody does. Right. Um, um, well, I want to get to some more reader questions in a second I and mean, we can keep talking about U.S. politics if you want. Uh, 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 but could you, I want to just bring in the, the Fed into this question for a minute, because again, it's something you've thought a lot about. And it's, it's a big part of, of um, you know, how all this impacts your money. So do you think that the Fed, as it is currently constituted and with the mandates that it has, is capable of navigating these kinds of scenarios, what, the, the world that we find ourselves in? I, I think to be fair to the Fed that it hasn't been given the enough tools or the right tools. That's just a, a, an historical legacy. That's how it was designed with its dual mandate. Um, you've heard me say this before, it, the, the Fed also has an unofficial triple mandate, right? So the dual, the dual mandate is stable prices and full employment. Um, every so often in the business cycle, those things, uh, uh, you know, they're not dual, they're actually contradictory and the Fed has to decide which of the two it will, um, it will prioritize. But after 2008 in particular, the Fed is also being tasked with market liquidity and financial stability. And so that's a constant um, structural downward drag on interest rates, if you like. So 
it's very, very difficult, I think, to be a Fed official right now. Um, I, I'm deeply confused because uh, if I can brag for a second, yours truly predicted this inflationary cycle in spring 2021, and I've got receipts, um, predicted that there would be rapid rate hikes. Um, colleagues of mine, RP Eddie, my boss, uh, actually pinned the uh, Fed terminal rate at five plus, which was a great call. Um, and I predicted there would be financial instability. Where's the recession then? Like this is uh, this is very confusing for me as an economist. I can I can speak to the politics. You've got to speak to the economics. Where is the recession? I don't know. Um, and there's a there's a massive debate as you as everyone on this call will know between soft landing and hard landing. And and sometimes I think that's um, you know shifty footwork because it you know those those words mean different things. Those phrases mean different things to different people. Um, but I'm I'm still at the of the core opinion that you can't really hit five plus uh, percent of the Fed funds rate and not expect to see slow, slow run pain going through the economy. Right. So mm-hmm. the sticker shock once you take off. Um, but I think the longer that rates are higher relative to where they previously were, um, the economy, the supply side will adapt around that. Now, that said, I mean, good, good jobs number today. Um, wage growth is moderating again, soft, hard, very difficult. Yeah. All right, let's let's go back to reader questions here, and and folks, I, I should have said this before, but you can, um, you know, write those in the, the chat box, and we'll get to them here. Uh, uh, but you're already doing it, so you don't need me to remind you. Uh, so Peter wants uh, to know about Ukraine. What? Why is Europe as a whole doing so little to support Ukraine? Peter, uh, I'm not sure I agree with so little. I think the Germans uh, and the French have provided serious financing. If you are referring to armaments, then yes, I agree. Uh, look, from the US, it's one thing to be involved in a proxy war. Um, for the Europeans, they're, they're on the continent with the Russians. It's flat land, right? Flat land from Berlin to Moscow. Um, and probably the, the caution, particularly in, in German domestic politics, the caution um, when it came to sending tanks into Russia is understandable given German history in particular. Um, that said, the Zeitenwender that um, Olaf Scholz has, has announced, I suspect means that, that you will see, Peter, the Germans rearm seriously in earnest, and that in and of itself will, will probably tip the scale, one hopes, in favor of Ukraine if they keep their end up. And I'm gonna give you a piece of trivia here. Okay. Uh, the, the country in Europe that is paying the most as a percentage of GDP to support Ukraine is Norway. You right. have a guess on what that number is? No, I don't. Tell me. <laughs> it's 1.7% of Norwegian oh. GDP is going to Ukraine, which is a huge number, huge. right? I mean, if we were spending, we were talking about that much here, um, the, you know, the politics would be even more insane than they already are. Um, but, but, you know, in aggregate, the Ukrainians are getting twice as much support from, from Europe once you include countries like Switzerland and the UK that are part of the EU. Um, twice as much from Europe as, as from the US, which is, I think, like, you have to understand that when you're thinking about these debates in Congress about whether we're going to support Ukraine or not. Right. Um, there's a lot of money coming from elsewhere. It doesn't mean that this money is insignificant, but uh, the Ukraine, the US is, is uh, you know, one piece of a bigger global picture. Well, I mean, good for Norway. 1.7% is, is close to the formal NATO target of two. So helps pretty- to have all that oil money. I mean, and that's all going to that's all going to Ukraine. I mean, I think some quite a bit of that civilian aid for for what it's worth. Right, right. Um, 
Ed, we had a question here about about Serbia and Kosovo. I mean, do you are you following that situation at all? Not as closely as I should. It's it's certainly um, historically a flashpoint, right? It's something that if you if you know your European history, uh, we were talking about World War One earlier. Um, I think you should always have have that region in the back of your mind. Uh, but honestly, I'm pretty overwhelmed with the actual war, the actual war that's going on slightly further east. Yeah, the other one to watch, of course, is Armenia and Azerbaijan, which yeah. are um, seeing some of the fallout, essentially, of, of Russia, uh, you know, pulling back its its uh, support for other, you know, allies in the region, um, another yeah. area that could be pretty some global conflict. Um, here's a fun question from Jim. Uh, why doesn't the U.S. seek reimbursement for protection from totalitarian countries, both from countries for which protection is provided and from countries like Russia that inflict damage? Shouldn't the country be paid for services rendered? So if I understand Jim's question, he's asking why other countries don't pay the U.S. for the security umbrella. Um, I think the answer is that the U.S. gets more out of having a secure international order um, than it does uh, otherwise. Like, imagine if the US did not pay uh, to maintain its formidable forward posture in the world. Imagine if the US didn't make that decision, um, surely as expressed in dollars lost, the subsequent misbehavior of totalitarian regimes in Europe and Asia would put the US on, and the US economy on such a back foot that you'd probably lose net net, um, you'd lose out. Um, I think the, the better thing to do would be to continue paying and to get European and other allies up to the 2% NATO uh, requirement, because then the, the NATO bloc itself would be even more formidable than it is. How, how does Saudi Arabia fit into that question? Well, Saudi Arabia needs US security, right? And a lot of the US, um, I mean, the, the US weapon systems that we, that we send to Saudi that they buy from us, we'll still operate them, right? They, they need the US technicians and they, they can't do that alone. I think that the, the very fact that uh, KSA and Israel are willing to sit down across the table is a, an Iran play. Neither of those two countries have any love lost with the Iranians. Um, and I would suspect, I don't know, so this is speculation, um, I would suspect that we're being pretty pretty nice to the Saudis right now because one day, in an act of desperation, uh, the Russians may restrict oil, global oil supply to really try and cause carnage, even if it costs them a pretty penny. And at that point, if the Saudis are super close, don't forget they have, they have supply. They have supply latent all the time, and they could flood the market with oil. So I suspect that's uh, one of the reasons that we're being as nice as we are to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Oil prices are falling a little bit, but they're still up quite a bit from the second half. We're in the mid-80s, I think, on Brent or something like that. Uh, and that's largely because of Saudi cuts, right? So certainly their power over the oil market is still pretty politically relevant. Um, all right, let's let's give David a, a question here. Uh, has the U.S. become a world mockery, Ed? Capitol Hill is in constant fights. We've got rising debt, poor growth, uh, but we're still trying to be a big brother. You are a, a former British diplomat who now lives in the United States. What's your take? I love this country. I love America. Um, I'm, I'm pretty pretty pro-Western, you know that, Matt, uh, axiomatically. I think that the real question is, if if the US looks like a clown show, which, look, occasionally it does, um, you have to imagine that that's because we're transparent and we, we show our dirty laundry and we think aloud and we iterate and we change. Um, 
Now, if you're comparing the US to China or Russia and scratching your head and saying, well, China and Russia seem like they're, you know, pretty much run um, very well and there's no problems over there, that's an information problem. You don't know what on earth is going on in either China or Russia. So I, I will concede that on the face of things, democracies themselves look and are pretty messy. Um, but remember, that's that's what they look like because there's information exchange, because there's iteration, because it's there's spontaneous order. Um, the countries that don't look like a clown show, um, who knows what's going on inside of, of those regimes because they, they don't tell us. I'm going to resist the urge to make a joke about the British here, but uh, let's let's ask let's ask Terence's question, which is how is the sale of Russian seized assets progressing? And for anybody who doesn't follow this closely, this is you know at the start of the war in Ukraine, uh, the U.S. and others essentially seized a bunch of central bank assets that the the Russians had, you know, tens of billions of dollars, and there's been this debate. Uh, amongst sort of advocates of Ukraine that that these could somehow be used in various different ways to help Ukraine. Um, there's there's sort of complicated legal questions that the administration has been, been working through and, and uh, other governments as well. Uh, do do you think this is a, worth pursuing? Does this uh, you know set terrible precedents for how central bank assets are used, or what's your what's your read on this situation here? I mean, it's it's super difficult because the essence of the US financial system is its creditworthiness. Uh, Uncle Sam does not default. And if you have gold or assets in the US, uh, we have property rights. And so on balance, I think that seizing Russian assets to prevent them uh, from using financing for this aggressive war makes perfect sense. That's, that's, that, there's no problem with that at all. I think once you start um, seizing uh, requisitioning people's property, um, you, you're in a you're in a different territory, and you're probably sending a signal to the world that you're not necessarily to be trusted with assets. Um, so maybe maybe we should seize these things so that, that you know you can't get them, but give them back to a future Russian regime twenty years from now. I'm not sure. That feeds in, by the way, to the sanctions regime. And if we look at what the BRICS are doing with their gold-backed currency project, I think it's overblown. I don't think it's a serious threat to the, to the dollar standard. It will be a, an asset class of some kind. But that is a direct response to Russia and others realizing, uh, you know, blimey, we are really exposed to the, to the capricious whim of U.S. Treasury. Um, maybe we should have another way to settle our trade and to hold our reserves. So very, very difficult. I do think we should freeze assets. Um, I think the US Treasury has done a good job in general with the sanctions regime. But once you start, um, once you start doing what the communists did and, and taking people's property, I think you're setting a different tone. Yeah, for, for what it's worth, I had heard back at the end of the year that the Biden administration was considering announcing something like this in the State of the Union. Uh, and uh, there were legal issues in the way, in their opinion. And that was, you know, 10 months ago. Uh, here we are today, and they still haven't seemed to have resolved this question. So it seems unlikely to to make progress, although I know there are a lot of people out there who really wanted to. So who right. knows? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Look, let's 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 wrap it up here. Uh, so we're out of time. Um, Ed, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, everybody in the audience for listening. Uh, please join us again on Monday. My colleagues from Barron's uh, senior managing editor, Lauren Rublin, 
and Deputy Editor Ben Levison will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Ed, thank you very much. And thank you to all of you for joining in. Uh, thank you. Have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.